0: Because man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Oh, Matthew nine thirty-five. Jesus continued going around to all the villages and towns, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the labors are few. Therefore pray. the lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest chapter 10 verse 1 summoning his disciples he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness these are the names of the 12 apostles first simon who is called peter and andrew his brother james the son of zebedee and john his brother Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Atheus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Father, your word is so good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you that your word is good and that it pierces our hearts. Lord, that you had compassion on the crowds. Lord, you have compassion on us today. Lord, let my inadequate speech, my inability to convey ideas, not hinder from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So some of you guys don't know me. I'm not the pastor. Uh, PJ Tobin is the pastor uh, of this church, and... Also, Jesus Christ is our head pastor, if you've ever looked at our website. <laughs> and uh, my name is Ross Kwong. I'm a member at Bethany Baptist Church. I'm a pastoral intern here. Uh, I currently go to California Baptist University. I study applied theology there. Um, I'm also a waiter at Thirsty Cow, a all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. Wait <laughs> Wait, is, is the name, is that what's funny, the name? <laughs> I'm confused, what's, what's funny? Like, is the, the name? Yeah, Thirsty Cow, it's, it's an awkward name. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a waiter there. Um, I, I didn't always grow up Christian, like I wasn't always a Christian. I actually grew up Buddhist. Uh, my, mom and de- my mom and dad were divorced at an early age, when I was at an early age. And because my mom was a Buddhist, I just followed her, I went to temple with her, um, it wasn't until maybe five or six when my mom, who was renting out a room to someone, came and the, the roommate brought me to church. And ever since then, a, root, a godmother of mine, or she's my godmother now, Auntie Jan, would continue to bring me to church. Um, I remember specific stories of Auntie Jan. Uh, Auntie Jan would come and pick us up. She was our Sunday school teacher. He, she'd come and pick us up from my house Um, and take us to church. But to be honest, I didn't like going to church. I I just wanted to sleep in on Sundays. Um, I didn't like singing to someone in the sky. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, So when she would come and knock on the door, my sisters would be ready, but I would hide. Because I'm too embarrassed to, like, go up and say, like, no, I don't want to go to church with you as a five-year-old. So what I would do is I would hide, and Auntie Jan would come, pick up my two sisters, and then go to church and come back and get me. So that's like an hour drive. Like from my house, no, from her house to my house is 15 minutes. From my house to church is another 15 minutes. And then from church back to my house is another 15 minutes. And then from my house to church is another 15 minutes. And looking back, I'm just such a rebellious kid. Like I would just refuse to go, but Auntie Jen was always there to pursue me. Like, six months ago, we were talking about this story. And she just started sharing her side of the story. Right, she remembers coming to my house and picking us up and, like, seeing me hide and not want to go. But she didn't want to force me and, like, drag me by the arm because she's not my mom and know, she just doesn't have that authority over me. So what she would do is she would say into the house, like, Ross, I'm, I'm coming back for you, Okay. And then she would take my two sisters, leave, go to church, and on her way back, she would just be pleading with God and just praying that God would work something in my little five-year-old heart. Um, And she said that as she was pulling up, she would knock on the door and I would instantly open because I was next to the door. Like I still don't remember this, but she says it's true that the door would instantly open and she just started crying as she was telling the story. Like, Ross, you don't understand. I was pleading for your soul. Like, on the drive back, I, s- like, I would be breaking down in the car crying because I knew the destination of your soul. Because if you didn't have the saving work of Jesus, if you didn't put your faith in that and repent, then, then you'd be going to hell and she would just be crying and, and praising God that I would be open to the gospel. And I want you guys to think of people in your lives who have labored for you. People like Auntie Jan who've cared so deeply for you. People like Auntie Jan who have prayed for you when you didn't want to be prayed for. Who've pursued you with the gospel. If you're a non Christian here today, um, That might sound a little weird like don't pursue me with the gospel that's a little creepy like i don't need you praying for me i want to tell you right now that these people care for you they care for you deeply and that's why they do it um they know that without your faith in jesus christ the fact that he died and rose again without your belief in that um without repentance from your sin you would be going to hell because you have angered a God who created you by disobeying him. So many of us, back to the Christians, have had people in our lives. And we understand that there are people around us who need us to be laborers. People need salvation from hell. People need guidance from their lost. People need People like Auntie Jan. And we all know this. We all know that people need salvation and people need this discipleship, but often we're so busy and distracted or so apathetic and indifferent and preoccupied that we don't go and share the gospel with them, we don't go and pursue them with the gospel. Do you ever struggle with the guilt of not caring for the lostness and doom of your neighbors and friends? I do. Thankfully, Jesus helps us and meets us here in Matthew 9, verse 35. So starting from Matthew 9, verse 35, um, to understand Matthew 9, verse 35, first I want to bring to light the story of Matthew. So from chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. A voice from the heaven says, This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's driven into the wilderness, and Satan tempts him. But Satan can't beat the words of God, and Jesus speaks the words of God, and, and Satan leaves. He goes. He calls his disciples and then he begins to perform miracle, miracles, and he begins to cast out demons, he begins to heal. And then the verse right before this, he drives out a demon, and the Pharisees say that he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees call him Satan. Right, but Jesus continues going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. My main goal today is that you would disciple the nations to follow King Jesus. Once again, the main goal today is that you would disciple the nations to follow King Jesus. Matthew here gives us three ways to disciple the nations first, by feeling the compassion of Jesus. Second, by praying for laborers. And third, by going to the nations. So we can see that Matthew is telling us to feel the compassion of Jesus in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, like I want to stop there and and say that Jesus saw the crowds before. It wasn't like Jesus was closing his eyes when he was healing people. It wasn't like Jesus was closing his eyes when he was teaching and preaching in their synagogues. But rather, Matthew is pointing out something specific here. That yes, Jesus saw the crowds before, but at this moment, Jesus took a step back while he was looking at all the crowds and reflected. And this is what he was reflecting on. And this is what caused this compassion in his heart. All right, so he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Why? What was he reflecting on? Because they were distressed and dejected. So that's the first reason why Jesus has compassion on the crowds, was because they're distressed and dejected. This idea of compassion has two side, side points. One, there's an intensity to the compassion that we have to understand. Right, This compassion that Jesus has for the crowds is not only an emotional response to the need that he sees, but rather there's a palpable, palpable reaction to the need that is so intense that it seems almost tangible. Like his compassion for the needs is palpable and it almost seems tangible to him. So what this means is, it's kind of like the idea that there's a gut drop to when he sees the crowds, or there's this heartache or this agony, like his heart is about to burst for them. Like, I think for me to understand that, it's like the feeling I would get or you guys would get if you saw improv- pictures of impoverished children in third world countries, like starving children. Like you see the need, and there's an emotion there, but that emotion feels so tangible, right? And that's the compassion Jesus had for the crowds. And not only is the intensity of the compassion important, but the second aspect that's important is the source of the compassion, right? The fact that Jesus, the king of the universe, Jesus God, the creator of everything, would have compassion on the crowds of people, it's like me having compassion on little ants. Like when I step on an ant and I kill it, I don't think, oh, man, I'm just, I'm so heartbroken. This poor ant. No, like I, there's just, there's this lack of a compassion for an ant. They're just so insignificant, right? But Jesus sees the crowds whom are insignificant in the sense that God is so much greater and so much more wise. But yet Jesus has compassion On the crowds. So why does he have compassion? Because they're distressed and dejected. Um, There's a few different translations that might help us understand this phrase, distressed and dejected. Uh, The ESV and the NIV uses harassed and helpless. Uh, The NASB uses distressed and dispirited. If you're a King James Bible user in here, I got one for you. Uh, It says fainted and were scattered abroad. So this is the idea that people are, are physically hungry and tired and sick before him. He has compassion on them because they're harassed in a physical sense. Like they're just, they've been traveling with Jesus for a while now. They're tired. Some of them may be sick. The second reason that they may be distressed and dejected is because Satan has been attacking them. Right? Some of them have literally been demon-possessed, like demons have been within them and Jesus has casted them out. Others have been led by Satan to worship dead created idols. And all of them have been tempted by Jesus to the fleeting desires and pleasures of their flesh. And Jesus sees these reasons and sees that they are more than just Crowds of people. But they have souls. And their souls have an eternal destiny. And he has compassion on them. The second reason in the text that we see that Jesus has compassion on them is because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Like, they're not literally sheep. But Jesus is using an illustration here to show what distress and dejected means. The Jewish the audience, would have instantly understood what that meant. Right? For us, we don't work around farmland. The primary economic system here isn't working in farmlands, but rather now we work in offices, but all of the people in those days worked around the farm. They were labored on the farm, and they all knew what it meant for a sheep to be without a shepherd. Right? It meant two things. One, that they were without direction, and two, that they were defenseless. So number one, so they were without direction. At the time the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the pastors weren't leading them, right? They were whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would say. And even more than the fact that their pastors weren't leading them, they were leading them astray. Right? right before this, the Pharisees, the pastors, are calling Jesus the Savior, the source of true life, the bread of life, the water of life. The Pharisees, the pastors, were calling, that, calling Jesus Satan. Right? The Pharisees, the pastors, were convincing the crowds to leave the source of life. Right? So the first reason why they're sheep without a shepherd is because the Pharisees are leading them astray. The second reason why is because they were defenseless to Satan's attacks. Satan is attacking them as we saw. Satan is coming after them. I think the idea is that if I if a wolf saw that there was a sheep without a shepherd, they would see free food like this is free right yeah it's e- it's easy money thank you lance i appreciate it like if if i was a wolf and i saw a bunch of sheep who are defenseless i would just start picking one up and you know putting them aside like let's let's hide them on the side for a little bit let's take this one and put it on this side and i would just start gathering them so i can eat them because they're they're just so defenseless they don't have anyone watching over their souls right And ultimately, Jesus has compassion on them because they're a sheep without a shepherd. Um, I I think about Psalms 23, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I want. I have what I need. Um, Jesus has compassion on them because they don't have the Lord as their shepherd. They... Ultimately, because the Lord is not their shepherd, they have no guidance from the Lord. They have not the protection of the Lord. They don't have the blood of the Lord. If you are not a Christian today, Jesus has compassion on you. You are the sheep without the shepherd. And Jesus haunts an intimate relationship with you. But the problem is that you've rebelled against God, the holy God of the universe, the creator of everything. You decided that you want to live your own life. You want to live it your own way instead of worshiping the God that created you, that demands your worship. And because of that, you are going to hell. But Jesus has compassion on you. And because Jesus has compassion on you today, what he did was he lived a perfect life. God sent his one and only son to come on earth, live a perfect righteous life, then die on the cross. A place for sinners. Jesus did not deserve to die. He did no sin. He did no wrong. So because Jesus does not deserve to die, he raised again three days later, proving that he is God. And what happened on the cross was his punishment, which was nothing. He deserved to not be punished, was swapped with our punishment. We deserve to be punished. Amen. We deserve to go to hell. But yet Jesus swapped it on the cross, and now if you put your faith in the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and you repent from your sins and follow him, he is faithful to forgive you of your sins today. So my call to you is to repent and believe in Christ. For the Christians out there, Jesus has compassion on you and me. Remember the time before you had the Lord as your shepherd and how lost you were how without direction you were. Where would you be if Christ had not had compassion on you today? So to the Christians, embody the compassion of Christ by seeing the people around you as souls. You know, it's very easy for us to just live our lives so preoccupied. I'm a waiter, and I see so many people during my shift, sometimes I just stop and think, man, I've served 100, 200 customers today. How many of these, all of these are souls with an eternal destination? The car that cuts you off while you're driving here, stop and think, reflect on the fact that that is a soul. Your friends, your coworkers, reflect on the fact that they are souls to BBC, to Bethany Baptist Church, begin to share stories with one another regarding the lost in your lives, the lost people in your lives. Because we can't do it alone. Because if I tried to stir up compassion in my heart over and over again, it's just not going to work. I just don't have enough strength by myself. God created a community and if we are reminding one another of the lost people in our lives, and we are praying together as a church for them, the compassion of Christ will come. Right? It will be natural. So the first reason why we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is because the first way is by having the compassion of Jesus. The second way we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by praying for laborers. So in verse 37 and 38, Jesus uses another image to show his compassion for the crowds. So this is verse 37. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So why should we pray for the harvest? Well, why should we pray for the crowds? Jesus is saying here, because the, humf, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. You see, not many of us work on farms. Not many of us would be able to vividly picture this idea of a harvest. But in, that, in those Jewish times, it was, it was very apparent. Like when they saw the harvest, they knew what it meant. It meant that people had been laboring on this field for months They've been sowing seeds and working the land and now finally the harvest is here and the harvest is plentiful it's ready. But yet Jesus states the problem as the laborers are few. Like there's there's so much let's get ready let's gather like we the prize is here but yet there's nobody coming to gather it. Like there's not enough laborers like we let's eat. But there's nobody Who's, wants, who's coming to get the prize. And Jesus is creating this sense of urgency in the disciples' hearts. To be honest, I never understood this passage. Like, just reading it, it didn't make sense to me. How are the harvests abundant, and how are the laborers few? I remember in high school, I probably shared the gospel over a thousand times throughout the, my, my senior year. Like I made it a goal that every passing period in 10 minutes I'd share the gospel to one person. So every day I'd share the gospel seven times at least. Right? And there was five people that ended up coming to my church and coming to know the Lord. The rest of them rejected me. Maybe like in total, 20 people came to our church. They didn't reject me in front of me, but when they got to church, then they rejected me. when I, when I think of these stories, it just didn't make sense to me. How are the laborers, or how are the harvests plentiful? Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying about this harvest? Is the harvest the crowds? Are the harvests the lost souls around me? If it is, then how is it abundant? I've shared the gospel a thousand times. I'm doing what you told me to do. Where's the harvest? And then the laborers are few? I, that, that just didn't connect with me. I remember, like, if you Google churches in Bellflower right now, there's over 20 churches in Bellflower. Right, like our, our goal here is to have a plurality of elders. That means we have more than one pastor. Like, I see so many faces here, and they're all laborers for the gospel. So what do you mean the laborers are few, Jesus? And then three years ago, I went to Malaysia. And then this, this, this passage made so much more sense to me. Malaysia is a very unique place, um, there's three different ethnicities, and each of the ethnicity has a different law. So the, Chinese, the three major ethnicities are the Chinese, um, the Indians, and the Malaysians. So all three of them would consider themselves Malaysian, but ethnically, the Malaysians there, the Malay-Malays, they have a different set of laws. They aren't allowed to be Christians. Um, the state religion is Muslim, so none of them were Christian, And I remember hearing this during my training and then going there and then seeing a third of the population and knowing that none of them have put their faith in Christ. That all of them are going to hell. And then it made so much more sense to me. The harvest there was so abundant. A third of the population does not know Christ. And then while I was in Malaysia, I was working with a pastor who was sharing his story with us. And, and he just started to cry. And this pastor was preaching at seven different churches all over Malaysia. So one day, he'd drive from the south to the north and come back. Next day, he'd go to the west and come back to the south. So every day, he'd travel around Malaysia because there wasn't enough pastors out there. And to be honest, it broke my heart. The laborers might not seem few here, but the laborers were few in Malaysia. And that's when this passage clicked. The laborers are few, maybe not necessarily here, but around the world, the laborers are few. The Malaysian population is what's known as an unengaged people group. This means that less than 2% of their population is Christian. And under this category of unreached people groups, there is also one called the unengaged people groups. These are the people groups that don't have the Bible in their language, that don't have any missionaries or any access to the gospel. If you went to an unengaged people group, and ask them, like, hey, have you heard of this person named Jesus trying to gospelize them? You know what they say to you? They'd say, nah, maybe maybe that's in the next town. I, I don't think there's anyone named Jesus in our village. Maybe you're looking for someone in the next town over. Like, this idea that there is no understanding, there is no beginning to the understanding of the gospel, do you know what that means? That means that Yeah, they're lost. That babies will be born, they'll grow up and become children, then teenagers, they'll work the land, become adults, they'll grow old, and then they'll die. And every generation, every one of them, would be going to hell. Because no one went. Because they have, no reason, they have no way of hearing the gospel because they sinned against the holy God and they deserve to go to hell. But yet that was many of us. We deserve to go to hell. But people came into our lives and labored for us. So Jesus is telling us to pray for Because the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Notice here in verse 38, it says, therefore, pray. Can I just point out that the commandment here isn't to go? That Jesus isn't saying, feel the urgency of this lack of harvest, this lack of laborers. Feel the urgency of that and go. Like, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, pray. And not only does he say pray, but look at who, what he wants you to pray for. He doesn't say pray for the harvest. Don't, he doesn't say pray for the unreached, unengaged people groups. No, he's saying pray for the laborers. Like the problem here isn't that the unreached, un, unreached people groups aren't willing to come and know the gospel. The problem here is that there isn't enough people going. There isn't enough laborers. Like that's the problem the text is showing. So why should we pray? One, because the harvest is abundant and the laborers are few. And two, because the He is the Lord of the harvest. Right. We we don't need. It's not that I'm not saying let's not pray for unengaged people groups. I'm saying while you're praying for unengaged people groups, God's command to you here today is to pray for laborers. Why? Because this is his harvest. Right? Like These are his people. It's ready. It's plentiful. So now we need people to go. This makes me think of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Um, Solomon has just finished building the temple. Uh, God is happy with Solomon and his people. Um, but he says this in verse 14, uh, even if he causes... See, he says this in verse 13, it's this idea like, even if God causes harm to the people and God causes harm to the land, verse 14 says, but if my people who bear my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins. I think there's this parallel idea of if you are willing to get before God and plead with him, then he will send out the laborers. Like That is his job. He will send them out. So to Bethany, to the Christians here today, my encouragement is that you would pray for laborers. The one easy way to do this is by downloading an app. Um, if you just go to the app store and you look up Joshua Project, uh, there's an app that sends you an unreached people group every day, and it has details of them, it has a picture of them, it has like, how much of the Bible is translated in their language, how many of them are Christians. Um, if you don't use apps... Um, you can go on their website, Uh, you can just click, you you type in joshuaproject.net, and on the front page, there's a place where you can type in your email, and then they'll start sending you it through the email. And this is one way to remind yourself that the nations are in need, and that they need prayer, that we can pray that people would go. To Bethany Baptist Church, um, do the hard work of praying in the evening service with the church. I, I know it's not easy. It's not glamorous. We don't turn off the lights and put on the fog machine, turn on the strobe lights, and then get going. But, like, it, it's just the hard work that needs to be done. Like, we as a church need to come together and pray. And in our evening services, we pray for the needs of the people around us, the, the lost people around us, We pray for the nations, we pray for overseas missionaries, the persecuted Christians, we pray for our government. My encouragement to you is that you would join us in doing the hard work of the church. To the parents here today, one easy and applicable way of discipling your children and feeling the need of the nations is by printing out a map or having a globe, and just going on Joshua Project and, and start adopting people groups and putting them on the map and showing your kids, like, showing your kids that there's a need and that the world is greater than you, the world is greater than the world, the world is greater than California, than the United States, and, and begin to pray and adopt people groups. And I was in a... Minnesota, two months ago, three months ago, and I just, I just saw them do this and the fruit that it produced. Like, they would see people groups begin to have the Bible translated in their language. And year after year, the kids would see, oh, wow, now there's 5% of them who are coming to know the Lord. Like, just the beauty of that, of discipling your kids through that. So the first way we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by feeling his compassion. The second way that we just went through that we can disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by praying for laborers. And then the third way, which I promise will be the shortest way, um, we can disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by going to the nations. So why should we go to the nations? In chapter 10, verse 1, um, summoning his 12 disciples. I want to stop and point out that word there is summoning. It's not gathers or tells or calls. The word summoning, and that word has a military aspect to it, right? Like Jesus is the Lord, he is the king, and the commander of the armies are summoning his disciples, his disciples. Soldiers to go to war. All right, this, this word here is showing that going to the nations is, is war. Church, Church militant, yeah. And he gave them authority. So this is verse 10, second part. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness. All right, so what Jesus is doing is he's summoning his disciples to do exactly what he's been doing. Right? Jesus has been casting out demons. Jesus has been healing the lost. Right? And then and Jesus has been teaching the people about the gospel. And that's what he's going to command his disciples to do. So verse 2 is the people he sends, which are his 12 apostles, verse 2 to 4. Verse 5, Jesus sends out the 12 after giving them instructions. So what are these instructions that Jesus gives them? Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town, but instead go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. So my question is, how does this apply to me? or What, 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 what does this mean? Okay, so Jesus is calling his disciples, his apostles, to not go to any Gentile nation. And what are we? We are Gentiles, right? But instead, to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Is that what he's calling me to do? Like, does he just want me to go to the Jewish nations? I believe the answer to this is no. Because this was a particular call for a particular people at a particular time. But if you read Matthew in its entirety, you see that Jesus sends out his disciples. They come back. He continues to teach. They continue to work. And then Jesus goes on the cross. He dies, pays for the punishment, pays for the debt that we owed. He rises again three days later. And as he's ascending into the heavens in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. So I believe Christ's call to us today is that we would go and make disciples of all nations. Christ's call to his disciples in the first century was to go and make disciples of all nations. So what does that mean to go and make disciples of all nations? Does that mean all of us need to physically move to Malaysia? That all of us need to pack our bags and travel to an unreached, unengaged people group? I'd say no, that's, that's not what it means. But what it does mean is that we would be global Christians. So what is a global Christian? A global Christian is someone who lives their life strategically for the gospel. That the decisions they make, the way they handle money, the way they handle what they wanna do for a living, um, the way they handle their time reflects a strategic way of reaching the nations around them. It saddens my heart to know that that in our culture, this isn't the norm. Normal Christianity is not living for the nations. Yet if we look through the scriptures that seems to be what it's saying. Like, if you want to be a Christian, just a normal Christian, you live your life this way. It's, it's sad to think that now people need a special call to go to the nations. The question is not, should I go? That's not the question here today. The question here today is, how do I go? Jesus already calls us to go in Matthew 28. He says, go, therefore make disciples of all nations. That is the command to go. The question needs to end here. We no longer have to ask ourselves whether or not we should go. We, we need to go. God has commanded us. But the question is, how do we go? There's five ways that we can go on this adventure. Jesus. So it, it's such a privilege to be honest, um, to be sharing the gospel, to be discipling others. Like Jesus gives us this privilege to go on an adventure. Right? The adventure is that we get to save souls. Like obviously God saves the souls, but He uses us. Right? Just think about how amazing that is that your words, your actions can change the trajectory of someone's life? Their destination was once hell. They were going to hell, right, because they've sinned against the holy God. But by the words that you speak, by the actions that you take, it can change the trajectory of their soul. Not only that, it can change the trajectory of their lives. I I think about my life and where I would be if the gospel, if God had not come to get me. Where would my life be if labors like Auntie Jan did not come and labor for me? I might be in a gang. Like Just being completely honest with you, I'd probably be in jail. But someone intervened And my encouragement to you today is that you can be that someone. You can be the laborer that changes the trajectory of someone's life. God has set you on this adventure to be a part of what he's doing. So go, be a part of it. My encouragement to non-Christians here today is that they would find meaning in that. If you're feeling lost today, and you're not a Christian, if you're feeling like you have no direction, it's probably because you don't have a shepherd. You don't have the Lord as your shepherd. Your soul is lost. God has created a hole in our hearts, and we are trying to fill it with our job, with our family, with more possessions, and yet it never feels like enough. and that's because the hole is meant to be filled with God. So if you are not a Christian today, my call is that you would repent from your sins, that you'd put your faith in Christ, and to go on this adventure with us. Join us. Find meaning in your life by sharing the gospel. Like That's the meaning that God gives us. To the Christians here today, my application to you would be that you would go. That you would go to the nations. Whether that means travel, get pack your bags, let's go, let, let's, let's head over, let's go to Malaysia. Whether that means that, or whether that means that you, you begin to pray for the nations. My application to you today is that you would go and pray. To BBC, um, I'm... So happy that our last budget meeting or our last, member, like, members meeting was a glorious one. Um, we, like, when we decided to increase our givings, to the IMB, the International Missions Board, I, I was so happy to know that more of every dollar that I give to our church, more percentage of it goes to missions. I commend you, my brothers and sisters, for approving that. Like, what a glorious thing. And for further encouragement, I encourage that Bethany Baptist Church be a church that looks like they care about missions. I think we're moving in the right direction, but does our prayer, does our conversations together look like one that truly cares about the need that's around the world? To the parents, Disciple your kids towards missions. Um, And one day, when they ask you if they can go, be the parent that fully supports them. There's always such sadness in my heart when I hear that kids want to go overseas. They want to be the laborer. And the parents who love Jesus say, I don't know, it's a little too dangerous out there that just breaks my heart because we know it's dangerous. Like, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that the need is great and that God promises that he'll be with you in Matthew 28. To the students, begin to plan your major, begin to plan your life in a way that reflects someone who cares about the need around the world. And if you cannot go right now, where you don't feel like God wants you to physically travel overseas, then begin to welcome. There's so many international students that come to the United States to learn. Um, Begin to welcome them. Begin to pray for them. Welcome them into your house. Build relationships with them. And then share the good news of Jesus to them. So that when they go back, they would be a Christian who is laboring for the gospel to the workers out there let god work in your life let your work let your work be open with where you want to work like you can be a teacher here or you can be a teacher overseas you can be a mechanic here or you can be a mechanic overseas my call here is that you would be open That as you pray about the needs overseas, as you pray for laborers, if God would call you to go using your job as a way to get into the country and work and survive there, my call is that you would. And if that is not what God is telling you to do, to physically go, then my call is that you would send. That the money that you make you would give generously to missions. It, It works both ways. If all of us go, who's sending? Who's praying? Who's, who's financially supporting us to go? So my call to those who are working is that they would give generously to missions. To the retirees and here to the elderly, it's, it's never too late to go. Don't let age be the reason why you don't go on this adventure. Don't let age be the reason why you don't go and spend the rest of your life devoted to the need, to the unreached and unengaged people groups. But if God is telling you to stay and not physically travel, then mobilize. Begin to disciple the younger generation, connect them with resources that enable them to go physically and travel. Um, Teach them about God's heart for the nations. Teach them about the compassion of Christ and the laborers being few. So today, our main idea was that we would disciple the nations to follow King Jesus. The first way we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by having the compassion of Christ. The second way we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by is by praying for laborers. And the last way we follow follow King Jesus. The last way we disciple the nations to follow King Jesus is by going to the nations. My call to action to you today is to be a global Christian. To be one that strategically lives their life for the unreached and unengaged people groups of this world. Whether that's Physically being here and mobilizing and sending and welcoming, or traveling, packing your bags and heading overseas. I didn't say it would be easy. The work is difficult, but the need is great, the harvest is plentiful, and the labors are few. So do hard things for the glory of God and the salvation of the many. Let us pray. Father, when I stop to ponder the needs around the world, when I stop and think and reflect on the people around me, ones who don't know and have Jesus as their shepherd and their Lord, and it breaks my heart, souls are eternally going to hell. I pray that that encourage, I pray that we would take steps of action and be encouraged that this is your harvest, that these are your people, that you never fail. Whether or not we go doesn't matter. If we don't go, God will send someone else. These are his people. Lord, I pray that the word of God pierces us deeply, and that my inadequate speech abilities would not take away from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.